pray you'd give me strength to present this in a way that makes sense, that people would have open hearts and minds, that, that my words would be your words, that my heart would be yours, and that your heart would infect us. And it is in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So let's dig into scripture. Here's the story. At the end of Jesus' life, he's uh, hours away from being arrested and crucified. He gathers his guys together for a last chat, and he passes on some key things to them that he wants them to remember. And uh, one of those key things that he told them was this. I am going to give you, right now, a new command. Now, that in and of itself is a little weird, because people just don't walk around making up commands. Commands are the... uh, the, uh, reign, the realm of God. God makes up commands. In fact, God already gave Moses all the commands that the people of Israel needed to have. So Jesus is actually acting a little bit like God here, coming up with a new command, shooting out a new command. And the disciples who've been with Jesus for, what, three years now, they've kind of gotten used to Jesus sort of acting like God, acting like he's God, and then doing things only God is supposed to do. So here's what Jesus said in John 13. A new command I give you, love one another, just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. Now this is a fairly epic moment, because Jesus is saying essentially, look, if you take all all 613 commands that God laid on the nation of Israel, forget all the the ones that the religious authorities made up, just the ones that God proclaimed in in the desert there after he brought them out of Egypt and slavery, Take all those and kind of boil them down to kind of one essential thing. Jesus says, this is it. You are to treat other people the way I have treated you. Now, Jesus could have gone all around the room, in that room, and talked to each of the disciples. You just want you to think for a second, guys, about how I have treated each of you, how I have loved each of you. That's how I want you to to treat everybody. And over the next few days, the reality of what Jesus just said there is going to sort of be brought home as he's arrested, tried, and then executed. It would lead one of the disciples who observed this and remember what Jesus had said to kind of pin this famous line that you've probably heard in John 3. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. See, see, the greatest aha moment in history came when these guys realized that Jesus' love for them caused him to lay down his life for them so that they might thrive, so that they might live. And they kind of realized that, okay, if if loving others, submitting to others means that you give your life for them, then they get it that that's what Jesus is asking them to do for everybody else. And folks, he's asking us to do the same thing as Christians walking this planet. It's really kind of an amped up golden rule, right? The golden rule says you're to treat each other like you want to be treated, right? But Andy Stanley calls what Jesus just said here the platinum rule. <laughs> treat others the way that Jesus has treated you. Love that way. Give your life that way for others. Lay it down for others. And what's interesting is that pretty much every single imperative that we have in the New Testament after the resurrection occurs really 
flies off of this great idea that Jesus just hit these disciples with right on the eve of his crucifixion. As I loved you, all you got to do, love everybody else the same way I've loved you. Lay your life down. A few years later, a guy named Saul, who hates Christians, who's persecuting Christians, who's tortured Christians, split up families, created orphans, put them in prison, put them to death, right? He ends up becoming a Jesus follower. He has this uh, transformational thing happen. He even gets a new name. He changes his name to Paul. And God gives him enough wisdom because he was a Jew. He was a sort of a, he was a, he was a rabbi. He was a Jew of Jews. He memorized the entire Old Testament. He was an expert in the law. So God uses all that knowledge and bring, basically brings it all forward. And he leads Paul to write basically what? Between 50 and 75% of what we now have as the New Testament. And what Jesus does, or what Paul does, is he takes Jesus' idea that we should love others as Christ has loved us, and he does two things with it. First, Paul just begins to live it out. He just lives it out. And secondly, in his teaching, he begins to flesh it out, describing how this is to play out in almost every kind of relationship that you might have, including romantic relationships, including marriage, right? This is how things should work. So Paul's really not making anything up that's new. He's simply taking what Jesus said as a brand new command, and he's simply applying it to real life that you and I have to live. Love others like Christ has loved you. So I just want to burrow in then for a second into one particular example that we find in Paul's writing of how he's basically encouraging people to do this. It's in the book of Ephesians, a group of Christians in the, in the city of Ephesus, and here's what he says in Ephesians 5.22. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. Doesn't get any clearer than that, right? Just pray and go home. No. no. Look, gals, if this bothers you, I get it. Some of you might even say, you know, that verse right there, as it's been applied in churches I've been in, right there is why I stopped going to church years ago. So I'm... So glad you're here today, because what we're going to do, I think, is going to fix the misapplication of this that you may have heard that was totally bogus. And, and to fix this, I got to start here. The New Testament that we have in English are really translations from the original Greek language. And there were groupings of these letters that were copied all over the place as a, as a church spread all over the Roman Empire, Right. The scholars today have discovered or found about 5,000 of these copies and fragments and put them together. Some of them dated only a couple hundred years after Christ, right? And, they've, and this allows, that number of, of them allows scholars to be able to kind of go back and use the science of textual criticism to basically piece it back together and say, okay, we have now really high confidence in what was in the original letters that Paul wrote, original letter that he wrote to uh, the book, the people in Ephesus. It's almost like if you're a genome expert, you see these guys, they have the, they take the, they take the DNA of people and they do the, they're tracing it back. And basically, if you saw one study about a couple years ago, they said, they said, the scientists go, look, we, we have traced all these DNA from all over the world and we, we could trace it all back to one original couple. Now, they didn't call them Adam and Eve because they don't believe in Adam and Eve and all that, but they said, you know, we could trace this all. It all makes sense. It all kind of grew out of the rich DNA that existed in the first, in an in original couple. So that's what they do with textual criticism. They kind of go backwards and they work and say, what was in the original text? Okay. Now, if you took this verse I just read to you, 
in the original Greek and you found the oldest manuscripts that we have, here's what it would say literally in English. Wives, comma, to your own husbands as to the Lord. Now, if you're a grammarian, you go, dude, that, that's not even a sentence. There ain't, there ain't no verb in that sentence. Yeah, there's no verb. In the sentence, in the original Greek, in the oldest manuscripts we have of Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus. The word submit is not there. And in a lot of translations, if you have a Bible with you, you can look at it right now, but if you go home and have a study Bible, you look at this passage, you'll see that the word uh, submit is actually maybe in italics, or there's a little footnote about the side, and it says, look, it, won't, it wasn't in the original language in that text, right? So, so here was before, so anyway, what I want to do is eventually explain to you why that word that is in your Bible is not really in the text, but it actually does apply to that particular sentence. Before I do that, I want to explain something else. When we hear about women submitting to their husbands, what do we do? We go, what? We're outraged. Huh? No way, this is, this is bogus. This is a bunch of, you know, people who are just looking to abuse and, and, and dominate women. But listen, here's the truth. When Paul said this to his first century audience, when they heard him teaching about this, their response was, sure, of course. They weren't startled at all. They were like, no, duh, tell us something we don't already know. It was not a big deal. Ladies, nobody was offended back in the first century because men in that culture, in both the Roman and the Greek and the Jewish culture, had a version of something called patria potestas. It basically meant that legally, guys had legal jurisdiction over their children and their wives. Essentially, their wives belonged to them, right? So when Paul says wives should submit to their husbands, everybody, including the women, thought, well, sure. I mean, what choice do we have? If we don't, they're just going to get rid of us. They'll sell us. They'll trade us. They'll divorce us. They'll throw us out on the street. Of course, we're going to submit to our husbands. That's just how things work in our culture. But, but here's what's interesting. That's not the way we think today, is it? It's a big deal to us. And the reason it is a big deal to us is because of what Paul actually says in this passage we are looking at in the book of Ephesians. And the interesting thing about that is that that explains to us why there's no subject or no verb called submit in verse 22 in the oldest manuscripts. It's the same technique you use in this Far Side cartoon. So you don't really know what happened in this cartoon, but you can infer it, can't you? You can imagine what happened. It's not stated. There's not a, there's not a previous screen you can look at. It's inferred. And this is why you have what you have in this Greek text, right? Why isn't there a verb, submit, in the verse about women submitting? The answer is that the verb is inferred, and the inference comes from the verse right before this. And this is a typical Greek grammatical way of talking. You'd make a statement with the verb, and then you start applying the statement, and then the verb was just implied from the original, the original statement. So the verb that submit that Paul uses that we see inferred into Ephesians 5.21 about women submitting is actually inferred from the previous verb and verse that Paul has right before this one. Now, I don't know if you're curious. 
But if you were curious, you might begin to ask, well, I wonder what that verse said. What's the verse right before this one that gives us the verb for women submitting? And so if you're not curious, you can just go somewhere else. But if you are curious, it's a game changer. It's a game changer. Because what Paul said before this verse, it blows the lid off everything. Here it is on the screen. He's telling everybody, you guys, you gals, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Everybody. Remember, that's what Jesus said. Love everybody like I've loved you. It applies to everybody. There's your word, submit. Out of reverence for Christ, submit to everyone. It falls right on, the, right on the heels of Jesus' big new command. Every time Paul tells us to do something, he always goes back to that new command that Jesus laid out. As God, through Christ, has done something for you, extraordinary, you are to demonstrate that kind of love to everybody else in all of your relationships with each other and just as an example in marriages. You are all to submit. Everyone is to submit one to another out of reverence for Christ in every relationship with each other, including in the marriage relationship. In other words, the submission, guys, get ready, is mutual. In light of all that God has done for you, in light of the awe and the reverence you should have when you realize that Jesus came, lived a perfect life, died for your sins in your place, and forgave you from all of your sins, and all the sins that you've committed after you accepted him by faith, he continues to forgive you for all those things. That awe is to be translated not simply into church attendance, not simply into singing worship songs, not simply into writing checks, although we should do all those things, right? But that awe is to be translated into a love that submits everybody to each other, that operates for the best for others. And this is why Christian marriage is to be a submission competition. Because the command to submit is mutual. So if you don't hear anything else today, it's the mutual submission in a Christian marriage that makes marriage amazing. And this is what happy couples know. They, they know I'm here for you. I think you're here for me. But I'm not here for you because you're here for me. I'm here for you because God was for me in Christ. So I'm going to leverage all of my resources, all of my talents, all of my gifts, all of me for what benefits you the most. Now, we may have different roles in our relationships. We may have different responsibilities in our relationships. We may have different gifts and talents. But we do not have different value. I'm telling you, this was earth-shattering in the first century. And Jesus was the model. So what Paul did was, was actually kind of brilliant as he begins to lay this out. Paul's beginning to make this very disruptive application in terms of marriage that was going to blow the lid off how things were done in the first century at that time. But he begins like any good communicator with a half a brain would do. He looks for some common ground. And the common ground of that day was, well, wives, submit to your husbands, as to the Lord. He knew he would get no objections from anybody to that particular statement, right? So again, he starts with verse 21, everybody's to submit. Everybody submits out of reverence, he's talking to Christians, out of reverence for what Christ has done for you. 
And his first application of that in human terms is going to be in marriage, where dramatic change was required. So he starts where there's common ground, wives submit to your husbands, but he doesn't stop there. I'm pretty sure that any survey you would take would show that pretty much 100% of the guys on earth are not worth submitting to, right? But Paul's saying, look, ladies, if you are in a marriage, despite the fact your husband's not all that worthy, if you're in a marriage, you're headed to it, I want you to place your future husband's hopes and dreams and desires ahead of your own. I want you to deal out of his box, not because he expects it, but because your heavenly father did that for you. But you notice that Paul does not stop there. And what came next would have shocked every guy in the room. He might have, maybe even shocked cats, I don't know. What came next had an effect on the audience that mimics our parallels to the reaction wives submit to your husbands. Guys, Paul says, this is what submission looks like in your lives. Husbands, love your wives. Just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Uh-oh. <laughs> Uh-oh. Husbands in the first century, you know, didn't have to love their husbands. Wives were supposed to love their husbands. Husbands could do anything they wanted to. So this blew the lid off of how things were actually done in the first century. He says, love your wives just as. You can watch those words in the New Testament as you're reading. They're always key to what's coming next. So listen, this is a Christian audience in the city of Ephesus, and they're thinking, okay, as Christ, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Okay, uh, I, think I, I think I remember that story. It didn't happen that long ago. I know this. It didn't end all that well for Christ. Paul, I think, I, think maybe, I think maybe I know where you're going with this. You're telling us that we as men have a responsibility to submit to our wives in the same way that Jesus submitted himself gave himself for the church. Well, how did Jesus operate? Yeah, we, we, we know what he did. He died for us. We, we know that's how far submission is to go. That, so that's what Paul's telling these guys. And Paul's not done. He says, in the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. It's like Paul is saying, okay, if you can't grasp the whole theology thing of Jesus and the church, we'll just make it real simple for you guys. You are to love your wife, you are to care for your wife, you are to protect your wife as if she were you. And this is more than they could even begin to grasp, right? And while they're trying to grasp that, Paul kicks them while they're down. He who loves his wife loves himself. Paul, what the heck are you talking about? See, Paul knows there's a mystery at work in a Christian marriage. That when two people are married, they, be, they become not just one flesh, they don't just have sex, they become one. There's, there's, no, there's no division they become, not identical, but there's one thing. There's not two things. There's no pulling away. So guys, your wife is one with you. This whole concept was brand new to that crowd. So gals, let me just step back for a second. Because I want to I I point this out while we're here. The reason in our culture that you bristle when you are told to submit to your husbands is because our culture... Our American culture, our Western culture, embraces the equality of men and women that Jesus talked about. So the minute we hear that somebody is supposed to submit to somebody, that grinds on us, right? But guess who introduced this whole idea of the equality and the value of both men and women to the world? 
Guess who rolled this out in a way that made such a huge impact on that culture? Guess who was the first person with any authority whatsoever who would declare men and women of equal value? Jesus. Like in Matthew 19, Jesus is teaching, and the religious leaders, who are always trying to trick him, they come up and ask, can a man divorce his wife for any and every reason? Because there's a group of people that said, look, if you don't like your wife, you can just say, I divorce you three times, and she's out of there. Could be for burning the toast, spilling the water, not having dinner done on time, because he's tired of her, he's found a new model, wants to trade her in, whatever. All he has to do is, all they have to say is, I divorce you three times, and she's gone. And Jesus basically looks at him. You can read this, right, in Matthew 19, but I'm just going to paraphrase what Jesus said. There is no reason. There's no reason under earth to divorce your wife. So you better go home and treat her like you would treat yourself. You men think that you are more valuable. You are not. She's valuable, of equal value to you. And your job is to go home and put all of your energy and all of your talents and all of your resources into treating her as the amazing, special, equal person that she is seen by God as. Value, the dignity, the worth that Jesus ascribed to women was amazing. Just read the Gospels for yourself and you'll find that women flocked to Jesus. What Jesus did and said and acted like was not lost on them. Women supported his ministry. They raised money for his ministry. They were the first people to see Jesus raised from the dead. And that was a spectacular thing. Because women in that day and age, if they wanted to testify in court, they, they, were, not, they were not even considered worthy enough of being, uh, being witnesses in court. And yet, every gospel account says that it was women that Jesus appeared to first after the resurrection. Yeah. The culture did not value the testimony of women, but Jesus sure did. So Jesus rolls this out, and then Paul fleshes it out. And Paul says, look, I, I know you weren't surprised when I said that wives should submit to their husbands, but guys, guys, I'm telling you that in God's eyes, you and your wives are equal, and you are to submit to her. Do you submit to each other? And that means that, guys, when you enter a marriage, you are to grab that box of her hopes and dreams and her desires. And you make that yours. I'm telling you, this, this was life-changing. If you read the New Testament, you'll find that women not only flocked around Jesus, they flocked around Paul. They were leaders and movers and shakers in the early church. Perhaps the greatest articulation of the gospel of Jesus Christ that's been laid out in paper form is the book of Romans. Guess who Paul gave it to the original copy, and sent it to the church at Rome. It's a woman. Now, it took the church a long time to kind of figure all this out. Frankly, I think there's still places where the church hasn't really figured it out yet. But our society, do not be deceived. Our Western society values both men and women, don't, don't they? But I got to tell you, it's not natural. It's because of what Jesus did and taught. If you have not lived in a cave if you've watched any news, read any newspaper, seen anything at all, you know that there are many, 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 many places in this world now where women are still being treated like they were in the first century. Anybody want to debate that? I didn't think so. So back to Paul. What's his point? Guys, it's this. Whatever you see life being, 
whatever life is to you, you put her before that. You put her before that. And listen, you, you cannot do that as long as you've got a big box of your own hopes, dreams, and desires, your expectations that you are sticking in the middle between you and her. And gals, you cannot do this either. You cannot love your husbands. You cannot submit to your husbands as God, Christ is telling you to if you've got a big bunch of expectations that he's got to meet sitting between you and him. And this is what happy couples know. They each get rid of their boxes and they become all in for the other person. You decide, as we talked about last week with E, that he doesn't owe me anything, that she doesn't owe me anything. You're deciding. You may not feel like deciding, but you decide to do this. You don't owe me anything, but I owe you everything. And for this to work, and this is the key, and it's going it's to frustrate some of you, I know it's supposed to be mutual. We're supposed to submit to one another in a, in a great marriage that looks like that, out of reverence for Christ. This is what oneness in a relationship looks like. You're wanting her best over yours. Her wanting your best over hers. Last week, he gave you some homework. Think about what's on your box. And think about whether somebody is carrying your box around. This week, the homework's a little more dangerous. Get some time set aside and ask each other what's in your boxes. And after you ask, stop talking and just listen. Special counsel for the women here. You should know that if you ask your man what's in his box of hopes, dreams, and desires, here's what you're probably going to get. Oh, 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 no, we're so articulate. Um, he may, and he may not know. He may not know. He may never have actually thought about it in that term. But guys, you need to do this because whether you know what's in your box or not, sure as shooting you got one. Sure as shooting you got one. And just don't throw Jesus out as the answer, okay? Just because it's a church thing. It's not the answer here. Take this seriously. Truth is, you are expecting her to fulfill whatever's in your box of hopes, dreams, and desires. And maybe you've never told her what they are. And ladies, this, I tell you, this scares guys. It's one of those interpersonal conversation things, right? It's not a football game, so he, we don't know what to do, right? So coax him, be gentle with him, but get it out of him, right? Maybe you wonder, why would we even do this? It sounds so crazy. Here, here's why. Here's why. If you read any research at all about what makes people happy or whatever, it, here's what we find. Here's what we find in the, in the actual scholarly research. Research has figured out something about people who are less about themselves and more about others. You know what it is? They're happier. They are happier. In other words, go out and find the happiest people on planet Earth and you will find the least self-absorbed people on planet Earth. And what that means is, if you find the happiest couples that you know, you will find the least self-absorbed individuals in those couples that you know. So submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. See, at the cross, Christ decided, I know we're supposed to mutually submit, but I'm going to submit. I'm going to do it first. So he gives his life. And he turns around and tells us, do the same thing.
Happy couples put each other first by going first in an effort to be the last and put the other person first. So if you're all concerned right about now about, okay, what's going to happen to my box of hopes, dreams, and desires if I put those aside and I focus on the other persons, right? That's what he's going to talk about next week. So you don't want to miss part three of what happy couples know. Let me pray for us.